Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Dr. Bola Adeshogan, all the way from Florida. How's spring coming in Florida? Spring is great. I mean, we have uh, had, this is uh, 1st of April, and we've had temperatures in the 80s. Um, although tomorrow the forecast is for 30, which is extremely cold for us. <laughs> so we're going to watch everybody break out their winter coats for 30 yeah. degrees. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, here in Western Oregon, it's not quite 80. No, not at all. But high 60s the last couple days. Very it's very nice for us. The pollen is filling the air. Yes. Um, yeah. it, it's springtime here in the Willamette Valley. Um, so... You are Professor Ruminant Nutrition, um, and you're the Director of Food Systems Institute and Feed yes. the Future Innovation Lab for Livestock Systems. Yes. Okay. So you were, though, trained in forages initially? Did, did you? That's correct. Okay. Um, where, where did you get your forage training. Okay, thank you. My um, first degree is from Nigeria. I'm, I'm a Nigerian originally, and um, uh, I have a degree in animal science, a BS in animal science from the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. Then I went to Britain for my graduate degrees, and my master's degree is in animal and forage science. And um, I worked with a renowned professor called Emir Rowan, and I did my master's research on ammonia treatment of straw back in the 90s. And uh, Emir has you know, done a tremendous amount of work over the years on um, improving the quality of crop residues and improving the, their utilization by small ruminants. And so that's where I did my master's degree. And then I did my PhD at the same institution uh, with Emir as well as Ian Gibbons. And Ian Gibbons back then was the director of the ADAS, ADAS being the UK USDA at the time, the feed evaluation unit. So Ian was the director and I did my PhD on prediction of the nutritional value of, of whole crop wheat silage. So um, my graduate education was focused entirely on forages, and that has pretty much defined my career. So for the last 25, 30 years, I have, all my research has had uh, a base in forages. What would be the idea behind improving feed quality of straw or byproducts with ammonia? What's that about? Well, so in many countries across the world, in many developing countries or low and middle income countries, the grains from cereal production or even legumes are too expensive 
uh, traditionally they've been too expensive to feed to livestock. And so what has typically happened is that crop production results in productive, high yielding uh, uh, varieties, but they are selected according to their grain production. That grain is priced for human feed, uh, for human consumption. And then the residue, the stock, the stowery is what is fed to animals. Of course, uh, that provides a lot of bulk, but very little nutrition. And so in a lot of many parts of the developing world, the bulk, the main livestock feed would be crop residues. Uh, there are breeding efforts now to look at dual purpose varieties that would optimize the grain production, but also try and improve the protein digestibility of the straw, the stem. But one of the things I'm, I am pushing for personally is forage varieties that where you maximize um, the grain and forage yield for animals, so you maximize animal productivity. The idea of using ammonia to treat crop residues is to break down some of the lignin linkages, the lignin, sorry, the linkages in the cell wall uh, between lignin and cellulose fractions that impede or reduce digestibility. And ammonia also has the added benefit of increasing the nitrogen concentration. So you have that, you know, you can have up to a five to 10% improvement in protein concentration after ammonia treatment, as well as a very significant improvement in digestibility. So the animal eats more because it's more digestible and performance improves. And of course, one of the key roles of ruminant animals is to convert non-protein nitrogen into animal protein, which Correct. huge value to humanity uh, globally. Yeah, um, so what is the Feed the Future Innovation Lab? And, and are there more than one of those or? Okay. So thank you. There is only one Feed the Future Innovation Lab for Livestock Systems. Now, Feed the Future itself is a US government initiative, which was started in 2009 during the Obama administration. And it was a response to the global food crisis. And one of the things the government did then was to create this across government uh, initiative that would combat global uh, food insecurity. Um, and so uh, USAID is involved, USDA is involved, Department of Defense. So there are several government agencies involved, but we work primarily with USAID. We're funded by USAID. Um, and the innovation labs are research for development you could call them projects that were uh, devised by USAID to address food security needs in the developing world. Uh, the previous iteration of what we now call innovation labs would be the collaborative research support program. So these were the old CRISPs and there was a livestock CRISP, there was a sorghum CRISP and so on and so forth. And so now we have the livestock systems innovation lab which is a project, it's a research for development project um, that focuses, focuses on 
trying to improve livestock productivity in a sustainable manner, but with the ultimate aim of improving the nutrition, the health, the incomes, and the livelihoods of poor people in different countries in Africa and Asia. So we, we work in eight countries. We work in Nepal and Cambodia. We work in um, uh, Ethiopia and Rwanda. We work in Kenya and Uganda, uh, as well as Niger and Burkina Faso. So eight countries, we manage or fund 45 projects that are all geared towards sustainably intensifying livestock production in order to meet, to provide more animal source foods to meet the needs of the poor. And, and I can come to that question later on about why we focus on animal source foods. And in fact, we're funded by both USAID and the Gates Foundation. And uh, so both of, um, we're funded by two of the, the biggest donors in this space. And they have come to realize the value and importance of animal source foods for not just meeting the, the nutritional needs, but also income and livelihoods of the vulnerable. And this is why they've invested in us. Well, and before we get too far away, they're also an essential part of the cropping systems in the the low and middle income countries absolutely they are you know livestock serve many different functions in in these countries um you mentioned they're part of the cropping system and yes very much so so they are vital sources of manure in fact there's some FAO data it's going back a little while now but showing that almost half of the crop production um, in many of these countries is supported by livestock manure. Um, so that's just one thing. The manure is also used for cooking. It's used as a source of fuel. Um, so uh, it's very vital in the cropping system and in the livelihoods of the people in these countries. Okay, so, so some other ways in which people in high-income countries, especially those a couple generations removed from agriculture, might be surprised in the roles that livestock play. Um, in addition to the fertilizer, there's the draft energy um, that's provided many farmers, many parts of the world still dependent on them. But in addition to that, you mentioned livelihoods and you mentioned improving status and and security. So um, those are issues that I think people should hear more about when it comes to livestock in other parts of the world. Yeah. You know, I, I have this, uh, I have a graphic and I, if I can share my screen, I can show it to you. And it really, at least in my view, share, shows the difference in perspective about livestock and the importance of livestock in the West versus in um, low and middle income countries. I don't know you, if I have that option to. You, you can try to share now. Okay, let's see if we can do that. We're all getting really good at Zoom these days. We are, aren't we? <laughs> there we go. Can you see that? 
I can. Okay. So this graph was made for uh, a meeting University of Florida put up on the future of food uh, last year. Mm. And I was asked to speak on the topic of what will livestock production be like in 2050. Mm. And so I have this graphic here showing some of the information here from UC Davis, showing one US cow produces about 500 grams of methane, or produces about um, uh, you know, 10,000 kilograms, or what is that, 22,000 pounds of milk a year. Mm. Um, now, in many of the countries, if we're looking at Indian cows, you would need nine Indian cows to produce that much um, milk. Um, and if you're looking at Nigeria or some of the other countries where you, we work in, you might be looking at 15 cows. Mm. And because you have many more cows, even though the methane produce, production per cow is less uh, from the U.S., is more from one U.S. cow compared to one cow in the developed developing world, because you have that many more cows to produce the same amount of milk, you're producing orders of magnitude more methane. Um, now, in the West, these are the issues that livestock production is known for, uh, pollution and their animal welfare. So these are the concerns we often hear about, uh, health effects and so on. Um, the prices are very low, so we're very fortunate. Uh, the demand is growing very at a very slow rate. If we look at the developing world, um, the animals are much less extensive. And as I illustrated here, the greenhouse gas emissions per unit of food produced are higher. But these animals are highly valued, very highly valued. And they account for, on average, about 40% of the agricultural gross domestic product in these countries. And the word I use there is indispensable. So in some of the countries where we work, up to 80% of the population is engaged in livestock production. Mm. And so they are indispensable for income, for crop production, for cooking. They serve as a source of insurance. So when people suffer shocks like droughts or famines, or there's a locust plague, they can sell their animal and derive income to survive that shock. So it helps them to be much more resilient. You talked about traction, and uh, the FAO data was suggesting that about 50%, this was from back in 2009, I couldn't find more data, but about you know, um, 50% of uh, 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 the, late, the uh, work on farms is generated by livestock. And then it's also very important means of women's empowerment. Uh, many of the women in the developing world are not empowered, they're not, uh, they don't have their own resources, but they may have some chickens or some goats. This provides much needed income and the ability for these women to have money to support their children, their families, and to try and put a nutritious, nutritious meal on the table. And th this issue here, we can talk about that a little bit more, this second paragraph about the deficiency, the, the severe lack of these animal source foods in the diet of people in developing countries has uh, really terrible effects. And that's why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. So I'll stop there for now. 
Um, brilliant. Just for clarification, you said that they're they're more extensive in their production system, so they tend to be more uh, taking up more space. Um, yeah. Um, also, uh, I think I was looking at. I uh, had a conversation with a gentleman from Zimbabwe, and then I went and was looking at comparison of emissions intensity for beef produced in U.S. versus the European Union versus Zimbabwe. And Europe, uh, U.S. was something on the order of 15 kilograms CO2 equivalent per kilogram of, of beef produced and Zimbabwe was up above 70 I think yeah. so a, a similar sort of dramatic difference in efficiency that that's one measure of efficiency um, and when you look at the number of cattle for example in these regions um, one way to lower their impact is to increase their efficiency. Correct. Yes, and and this is this is where we come in. So we are trying to sustainably intensify livestock production. So one of the key things we look at, or we we have at the back of our minds, is emissions intensity. And like you said, these are very high in these countries. So there's a lot of greenhouse gas production per unit of feed and much greater than that in the US or Europe and so on. And so in, in the countries like you mentioned, uh, some of them have very, very big livestock herds. Um, um, some of them have, you know, 100 million heads of cattle, but the productivity of these cows is low. Um, the animals are used for various reasons, some of them are sold, but others are kept as a status symbol. Um, others are kept in certain countries like Nepal and India for religious reasons. So even a cow that would normally be called would be retained in the herd and would continue to be fed. And, and of course it's releasing emissions, but then you know they, the religious reasons are there and that's why they're retained. In some of the countries, there is um, little uh, um, equipment for cropping, for plowing, and so on. So they use the animals. And they mean some countries, they only use animals for two months a year, but they are feeding them year round um, to keep them for those two months. And so you're right in saying that if we could reduce numbers and increase the productivity and efficiency, of a fewer number of animals, then we would have even more meat and milk and eggs and so on produced. We would meet the needs of people while having less of an environmental impact. So that this is one of the things that we're really trying. So, as I mentioned before, I, I think that it may not be well recognized, but we have high quality evidence of the harm that comes to human beings when they don't get enough animal source food in their diet at critical times. And I, I think of those at, at the two ends, um, you know, expectant mothers, nursing mothers, developing infants and children, that, that end, and then when you get to be 
old farts like me. And, and we, we're, we're coming to understand that we need more protein and high quality protein in our diets as we age so that we might age um, in, in a healthier manner. Um, but you showed in that graphic some of those statistics about stunting. of, And so let's talk about that evidence of harm to children and then also what that represents in terms of a drag on development. Mm, thank you. Yeah. So this is the main reason why we're passionate about what we do here at the University of Florida, this issue of stunting. And I'm speaking on behalf of uh, a team of about 20 faculty members, and we have about 15 staff. And we're all, I know, really passionate about this subject. And the issue is that in the develop, developing world, in low and middle income countries, particularly in the rural areas where most people dwell. Diets are pre predominantly starch-based. So it might be noodles, it might be rice, it might be potatoes, but they are predominantly starch-based, high in calories, but low in nutrients. And um, many of the people in these areas don't understand the concept of a balanced diet. So they eat to fill their stomachs and they fill their stomachs with these high calorie nutrient inadequate diets. Um, and why animal source foods are important. In fact, World um, UNICEF came up last year, this was pre-COVID and said 59% of children worldwide do not get the nutrients they need from animal source foods. That was before COVID. So I'm sure that the number is much worse. World Health Organization has also said that animal source foods are the best form of food to supply the critical nutrients needed for infants aged six to 23 months. So breast milk is what is recommended for age zero to six months. But from that age to two years, animal source foods are the best source. And you can ask, and I'll answer the question, why? Well, first of all, the first two years of life, the first thousand days, it accounts for 90% of brain development. So the brain is going through a lot of important development through that stage. And if the brain is starved of those critical nutrients, then brain development is impaired. And that impairment of brain development is, is very difficult to reverse. And so people have said that when children are stunted, they are condemned to a lifetime of underperformance and underachievement. And so you have these kids who go to school and as a result of this, the lack of critical nutrients in those early formative years, their brains develop poorly and their ability to perform well in school is compromised. So in the countries where we work, stunting levels uh, range from probably uh, the high 20s, depending on where you are in the country. In some places, it's 40%, even 50%. Um, and I'm not talking about country averages. I'm talking about specific locales within the countries. In the countries, most of them would be in the 30s. 
So that's about one in three children is stunted. And stunting affects the child and that child's ability to do well in school, to hold down a good job, to contribute to community. But stunting also contributes, is a drag on the economy, like you were mentioning. So some World Bank researchers have found that globally on average, um, for Africa and Asia, the average impact of stunting on the gross domestic product is a 10% penalty for those countries where a high percentage of the workforce is made up of people who are stunted in childhood. So 10% on average, but my colleagues in Ethiopia were telling me that the percentage they calculated was 16%. So these are huge impacts. And, and so why are animal sources so important? Well, um, the first thing is, you know, one of the things that got me really interested and motivated in this study, this area, was some work done by the Global Livestock CRISP when it was headed by Tag Demet. So it was the previous iteration of this innovation lab. And they had done some work in the 90s um, showing that uh, when you take the basal diet of school kids in Kenya, these were, I think they were about maybe seven to five to seven year olds. So this is, this illustration is, is, is kind of pushing back a little bit on the point you made where you said that those who need these nutrients are those in the early stage infancy and then the uh, elderly, which is true. But I think the illustration I'm going to give is showing that it's not just them. So these were kids in elementary school who were fed the basal diet in Kenya, um, uh, uh, the theory, which is beans and corn, and, um, and with maybe a little smattering of vegetables. And the idea was, let's see what happens when you add a little bit of meat to the diet, or you add a little bit of milk. Or let's also look at what happens if you add some energy in the form of oil. What they found was that when they added meat to the diet, the test scores of these children averaged across all school subjects and five school semesters increased by 45%. So this, is, this was published um, in a high quality reputable journal here in the US. So this is, this is very sound science. And then they also showed that for those who got the milk, their test scores increased by 28%. Those who got the extra energy, there was no improvement in their test scores. And those who got the, um, the meat, their leadership abilities improved. They were more playful, they were more boisterous. And of course they grew better as well. So I heard about this study first in 2013, and it was the first time I realized that diet could influence test scores. And being a livestock person, being an animal scientist and a forage person, it really motivated me to want to do something to address this situation. So we were very privileged when USAID and the Gates Foundation decided to invest to fund the University of Florida's proposal to host this livestock lab. And so what we do now 
is in all our focal countries, we work with all livestock species right through the food system, the value chain from working on improved forages, improved cross red, crop residues right through to diets and directly looking at what happens when you add milk to the diet, what happens when you feed children eggs, um, how does that affect stunting, how does that affect uh, their nutritional status, their well-being, their susceptibility to diseases. And so we have about 45 projects. And these cover food safety, they cover women's empowerment, because women are so vital in these systems. They determine what's eaten in the home, they are the ones who are the main caregivers for the children. But in many cases, in fact, in most cases, they're not empowered. So the men make the decisions. The men hold the purse strings. But the women, and when we target women, we find that um, the, the impacts of our interventions are much greater. Mm. Um, so we work in all these areas. We work on livestock production, the typical areas of nutrition and genetics and so on. We work on animal diseases. And if you want, I can give, we have time, I can give you a few examples of the work we've done and some of the impacts. Oh, perfect. Um, one other th uh, thing I think I've heard about stunting is that it, it actually is intergenerational. Correct. Um, now, now yes. obviously it'd be hard to tease out, you know, what, uh, the, is it is it associational or is it causal? Um, but the 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 statistics are that stunted mothers or stunted children tend to have stunted children, at least women, uh, the females in there. I, I don't know if there's been anything done to look at males, but so this is something that not only this generation, but the next. And the other part that you mentioned, but it, it resonates with me, is that this is something that diminishes the potential of human beings that, that we should be striving to eliminate. And, and one of my optimistic views is that as we get up above 9 billion human beings, if we could have 9 billion well-nourished brains communicating, what problems couldn't be solved if we right. could? So this seems to, uh, it's somewhere I came across the, the line about feeding the low and middle income countries out of poverty. And and I've, I've butchered the quote. I've got it somewhere. But but that yeah. concept yeah. of w this is fundamental to that development, and um, that's partly what's behind my notion of a ruminant revolution, as an uh, to to obviously pay credit to the green revolution. We 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 are at a time now where. For the most part, we're not looking at caloric insufficiency. That still exists. It needs to not exist. It, right. But that tends to not have much to do with production. It tends to do with distribution and other right. things. Um, but now we need to be focusing more on the quality, as you say, yeah. the, the, yeah. the nutrients, not merely the calories. Yeah. So I think it was... 
and perhaps you were the one that told me at a conference, but it was about uh, just deploying dry cow treatment to Nepal dairy cows yeah. and the impact yeah. that that made. Yeah. So by all means, please share some of the, the, the stories because again, it, I'd, I'd like to find a good agricultural historian who could walk us through what's happened in the United States over the last hundred years, yeah. Um, yeah. because it's been pretty remarkable. Um, not all good. Nothing ever is. Um, on the other hand, we have people throughout much of the world that are still where we were that long ago. And, and how do we appropriately deploy the technology, the knowledge into these areas for people's use, not for mm -hmm. some top-down kind of thing, but get the right. information to the to, to the farmers. And um, so if you could share some of those, that would be wonderful. Sure, I'll be happy to. Before I, I do that, I'll just say, you know, you're talking about history, uh, and the Dutch are now the tallest people in the world on average. Uh, but if you go back to the 40s, they were not. And one of the things that really changed that was um, pushing milk consumption. Of course, in many countries, the US, UK, and so on, school, you know, school milk consumption by school children is something that um, was pushed very heavily. And that has really helped a lot to address many issues. A lot of the time we think about animal source foods, people talk about protein, but it's not just the protein. The protein is the highest quality protein. The protein is uh, very important um, and it's the highest quality because of the balance of amino acids. But the micronutrients are just as important as the protein. And this is where there is a difference um, between animal source foods and plant source foods. Uh, the plant sources have many of these nutrients, but the bioavailability is much less. Well, and some, about, some of them they don't have at all, right? Um, some don't have at all. Yeah. Some aren't the right form. And then as a forage agronomist or someone with that training, and this has only recently occurred to me, is how much time we spend sampling hay because it varies so much in its nutrient content. Correct, yes. And the yeah. same thing yeah. happens with all plant source products. That's true. That's very and, true. I haven't thought about that. And we pay very little. I mean, it's it's there on the label. Well, I don't think they print a new label for each batch. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry yes. to interrupt. No, 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 that's fine. Um, and so those micronutrients, you know, just giving an example of spinach, you know, spinach is a great source of iron. But an iron deficiency is one of the biggest, you know, nutritional problems across the world. Yeah. Um, but a woman would have to eat about uh, three times as much meat, I think it is, to get her iron needs met from spinach. And if you were comparing to liver, it would be about six times as much. And, uh, you know. mm. and so the, the density of the nutrients in animal source foods and the availability mm. is what makes them unique and what makes it yeah. different. Um, and, and so it's it's the meat, it's milk, but it's also eggs. There was a study from uh, Washington 
uh, University of St. Louis that showed that just feeding an egg a day reduced hunting by 47%. Um, we have, let me give you a few of um, examples of some of our studies. We had one study where in Burkina Faso in West Africa, again, just one egg a day reduced um, wasting uh, and underweight in children. Wasting is more likely to kill a child than stunting. Stunting has long-term effects over life. But we discovered that just feeding one egg a day reduced the, the, the prevalence of uh, wasting among these kids. Um, and uh, we had to use a behavior change strategy. When we think about these developing countries, it's not quite as clear-cut and simple to effect change in behavior as it is here. Um, because there are cultural norms um, that may get in the way of what you're trying to achieve. So in many of our countries that we work in, uh, people raise livestock, but they sell them and they don't consume livestock products. Um, and we discovered that in, in this part of Burkina Faso, they were familiar with uh, selling poultry, but consumption was low. And in some parts of Burkina, there are even you know, tab taboos about egg consumption. So what we did was we worked with some of the village elders and said, we're going to give three chickens to poor families, and we're going to ask you to ensure that they give an egg a day to an infant, to their, to their uh, under two-year-olds. And we had a controlled treatment. And those, and then we also had a third treatment where we provided training on animal husbandry and the importance of eggs in the diet. So we had three treatments, control, then we had training, and then we had training plus gifting of chickens. By the end of the study, those on the full intervention were eating six eggs a week, those kids were. And it was because their mother, within a few weeks, their mother saw a difference in the demeanor of their children. So even before their husbands were won over, they said, we must feed this egg to the children. By the end of the study, the women were buying hens themselves and say, we must have, because they could only feed one child um, uh, you know, during the study. And so they said, we must do this for all our children. And so that's one example. You referenced the Nepal study. And for that Nepal study, we were working on mastitis, which is the biggest, one of the biggest problems in dairy cows that reduces their productivity. And we found that the prevalence of mastitis is very high in Nepal, uh, over 50%. Similarly in Rwanda, which is another one of our countries. And so we did some dry cow therapy. Um, we introduced you know, the California mastitis test and we just put a package of interventions together. And as a result, uh, mastitis levels went from 78% in Buffalo to 18%. And by the way, because for religious reasons, you know, cows are sacred in Nepal and India. So most of their milk comes from Buffalo, not from dairy cows. But we drastically reduced the incidence of mastitis um, by a simple intervention. And now Heifer International, who they ran that project with us, they're now scaling that across farms. The National Dairy Development Board in Nepal is taking that on. Um, that's one example. Uh, staying in Nepal, we, um, 
used, uh, we developed an app for formulating balanced rations from existing locally available ingredients. Um, and 94% of dairy farmers who tried it so that their milk production increased. Of course, to us, that's a, a no brainer. Um, but to them, it was something substantial. And again, the government has taken that and is now uh, scaling that across different dairies in Nepal. Um, we had some projects in Nepal focusing on women in rural areas. One of them was focused on developing an app to give these women some empowerment. And this app would allow them to record symptoms of uh, diseased livestock. And um, we gave them smartphones so they would take a picture of a sick animal, uh, record the symptoms, upload that to a server. And these are, in, you know, if you've been to Nepal, some of the rural areas are very difficult to access because of the uh, road infrastructure um, in, in the rural areas. And so vets in Nepal and the U.S. would then access the server, diagnose the animal's condition, and then the government vets would send someone to treat the animal. And so they prevented an episode of a, a potential epidemic with uh, hemorrhagic septicemia as a result of this intervention. And disease reporting in the region went up um, 100% uh, just by these, these women. Of course, the women became empowered. They now said, now we want to become community animal health workers. We want our training. So another thing we did was we provided that training to women by distance education, um, rather than by asking the women to come out to the center where the government provides the training. Mm -hmm. so the government allowed us to do that and we compared the in-person versus the distance. Well, the distance resulted in 24% greater graduation by the women. And the reason why is that um, those women could be at home with their children, they could see to their own tasks. They didn't have to be away from the home for a prolonged period of time. And so they could do all those things and still they were, they were motivated to do the work. So their graduation rates increased. And now the government is also looking at scaling that. Mm. Um, let's move on to Cambodia. We had a food safety project in Cambodia where we were looking at uh, the cost and uh, levels of foodborne disease and the causes. And this was in the pork value chain. So we discovered very high levels of salmonella in the pork value chain, about 42% contaminated, went into hospitals and clinics and found um, that it cost $62 to treat one case of foodborne illness. Um, and we were able to link illnesses in the hospital back to food items that had been consumed. And now we are deploying um, plastic aprons, uh, plastic cutting boards and things like that to improve hygiene. So that's a project led by our ILRI partners and uh, EFRA International, EFRA, uh, the government, uh, the, the, the government of Nepal, sorry, Cambodia. Um, in Ethiopia, we've done a number of different projects. Um, we probably have about 15 projects in Nepal. Young stock mortality was the number one priority of the government. And so we went in with our colleagues from UC Davis and um, identified the causes of young stock mortality and deployed interventions that reduced 
uh, young stock mortality across all species. And this was done in close collaboration with a government-led consortium. Um, but you know, one of the things that was very important or was causing the high levels of young stock mortality was inadequate feeding of colostrum, mm -hmm. uh, which is you know, the milk that is let down by the cow just after uh, it calves. So um, improved forages are huge. So in many of our countries, <laughs> I can see you, you brightened up when I talked about forages. <laughs> um, so we're working, you know, we've, we've taken, um, one good thing about Florida is our subtropical climate is very similar to what they have in many of these countries. And so we've taken some uh, uh, varieties of different forages that were developed here in Florida. We've taken them to places like Burkina Faso, uh, to Ethiopia, and so on and so forth. And they were shown that they are higher yielding, they promote better growth of their livestock, increased milk production. Um, we've had uh, some of our countries where they've had high levels of aflatoxin in the uh, milk of cows. We've traced it back to what they're feeding, found it high levels in certain animal feeds, some of their protein cakes. Now we're trying to understand where in the protein cake production process is the contamination taking place? I could go on and on. But yeah, I'll yeah. Well, so there's several things. One, in many of these countries, the forage management is cut and carry, right? Correct. Um, so the animals stay home and the farmer goes in and brings it home. Um, and it's by hand. It's not with a nice uh, forage harvester in a wagon and, and right. bring it back. Um, I, I remember seeing one presentation on a, a small-scale dairy cooperative project from Tanzania, and they were – I became – aware of the idea that, well, you can find livestock for their own protection <laughs> in some parts of the world. Um, but all of these things bring to mind uh, sort of a double-sided coin. One is what we entertain in the high-income countries has the potential, for good or bad, to impact people in the low and middle income countries as they strive to better themselves. Yeah. Um, and there have been certain initiatives, most recently the Eat Lancet proposal, um, that at least to my mind have the potential to um, at least divert resources and attention from the kind of work that you're talking about because they tend to treat livestock agriculture as the problem rather than the key part of the solution. Is that yeah. something you would agree with or? Well, no, I not only agree with it, we actually wrote a paper on this subject, which we published in the Journal of Global Food Security, or you have a copy there. And <laughs> the title is something like um, Animal Sources. Sustainability uh, problem or malnutrition and sustainability solution. Yeah, Perspective that, matters. Perspective matters, yes, yes. So we did that, and we did that in response to the Eat Lancet publication because we felt that um, 
We felt that it didn't do justice to the subject. The original intentions may have been good, but the way in which the work was done, the way in which the paper was published, the information presented was not unbiased. Uh, and I'm not going to speak so much about the Western uh, livestock production aspects, because I know some of the other speakers have done that. But one of the things is that um, when the, the messaging, the key messages that went out from that publication is that we all should reduce meat consumption and so on and so forth. Whereas in these countries, the opposite is the case. If we think about the levels of meat consumption in the US, in Europe, the orders of magnitude greater. In fact, I think if I can, I might have a graph here somewhere that illustrates that point. Um, greater in, in the countries in the West compared to the countries, um, yeah, let me share my screen and show you this one here. Okay. <laughs> so, can you see that? Yes. Yeah. So this is a graph, uh, I think it's also in the paper, um, where we looked at the bars with different colors are levels of meat consumption in different countries of the world. And the different colors are just different types of meat. Um, and then the diamonds are levels of stunting. And one of the things that was apparent to us is that there seemed to be an opposite relationship, an inverse relationship. And we went back and took out the names of the countries, replaced them with numbers and did a regression. And we found a very, very highly significant negative relationship. So that as meat consumption increases, levels of stunting decrease. And when the Eat Lancet report came out, the state minister for, for Ethiopia, who is someone we work very closely with, actually wrote um, uh, something of a rebuttal, saying that in the countries, in his country, what is needed is certainly not less consumption of meat, rather it's more. I remember one of the government officials for the USDA equivalent in Rwanda, that's the Rwanda Agricultural Board. Um, she said, Bola, when you go into these smallholders' homes, I give you permission to frighten them. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I tell you what I mean. These are families with very little resources. They scrape together um, to be able to put a decent uniform on the back of their kids when they're going, you know, to have a, a nice uniform for a kid going to school. And she said what pains her, what really bothers her, is that these kids go to school with uh, a nice new uniform. The parents have really struggled to be able to afford that uniform. But then they don't know anything about the diets and feeding the children what is needed to capacitate the brains of the children. Mm. So she was saying, I give you permission to frighten them because unless they realize how stark and devastating this problem of stunting is, they will continue doing what they're doing. 
So the government of Rwanda has given poor families one cow each through its Gerinka program. But what is happening is in many cases, those families would sell the milk and use the money for various things rather than reserve some of the milk and ensure that children are getting it. So we have actually been conducting studies to inform families that, look, you need to retain some of that milk and use it for your children. And we are seeing a trend towards that reduction um, and improvement in nutritional status of the children as a result. I've, I've actually, I have to admit, taken this graph and um, drawn a line across at the level that Eat Lancet recommends. <laughs> and <laughs> it's <laughs> well, well to the left. Well, um, I mean, if you, yeah, you look at, you know, the, the Asian and African countries, sorry, I'm no longer sharing it now. Some of them are, many of them are eating, you know, um, just about, uh, uh, five kilograms per capita per year, um, whereas in the West, we're eating, you know, uh, much, about five times, 10 times that, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's to come up with a publication. And I know that in the manuscript, the Eat Lancet manuscript, there was some reference that in developing countries, maybe this may not apply, but it was kind of buried. Yes. And it certainly did not make the key messages that came out. So I think there is a real danger of uh, misleading people Absolutely. Uh, about uh, the, the importance of consuming meat and, and other animal source foods. And that's why we wrote that paper. Yeah. And in addition, all of these aspects that we've been just touching on, that this is part of a system that leads to improvement and development and human flourishing. And it, the, the, the proposal that's being given as an alternative does not meet those criteria no. and, and cannot meet those criteria and is in many cases built on very questionable data. That's my perspective. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Um, but I, yours is one of the papers that I also make reference to in my presentation because I think it's critical for people to understand the global challenge yes. that we're looking at. Um, so the other side of the coin that I mentioned before, besides the mischief, is the good. What So people of goodwill who are interested, how could they learn more? How could they get involved? How could they, you know, are there organizations that they could become supporters of um, that you would suggest? Okay, thank you. Yes, um, first of all, for our group, the Livestock Lab, we're now affiliated with, um, we're now housed in, um, what is called the Food Systems Institute, which I'm also privileged to direct. And this is an initiative that was started last year at our university that brings together experts in the areas of crop production, soil conservation, water conservation. So it's looking at what it takes for the entire food system to work well, to be resilient, to be efficient, um, to be sustainable. And so we have about 50 faculty across the University of Florida who are members of this institute. And so um, either we're going to have a, a 
a button on our website. So if you want to donate to the work that we're doing, you can do that through that uh, Food Systems Institute website. If you want to read more about our work, you can go to the Livestock Lab website. It's livestocklab.ifas, which is ifas.ufl.edu. And the Food Systems uh, website is Food Systems. I think it is um, at IFAS. Uh, I'll, I'll get it for you in a minute so I don't misquote it. But so that's information from us. But we have many sister organizations who uh, we collaborate with, and we work with about 20 US universities, including Davis, Texas A&M, University of Georgia, um, uh, Kansas State University, so about 20 of them. And then we have 63 global partners. Among our global partners would be the International Livestock Research Institute. We work hand in hand together on these projects. Um, Heifer International is another strong partner. Uh, so we have many of these partners. And if you go to their websites, you will find a lot of useful information. Of course, FAO is, um, we also work with FAO in some areas. Uh, FAO is a food and agricultural organization of the United Nations. We also have relevant information, um, as would, um, there's the Global Agenda for Sustainable Livestock. Um, which is an international body that looks at issues pertaining to livestock sustainability. And then there are, you know, different industry partners have foundations as well, like Lando Lakes and um, uh, Lanco and so on and so forth. Hmm. Um, and how about if we imagine um, 2050 is only 29 years away, and you know we've we've heard these projections of what the world of 2050 will be like and the demands for food, and um, but oh, somebody leaving high school, entering undergraduate education at this point—that's their professional lifetime. They yes. they could work toward a solution to many Correct. of the issues that need to be solved if we're yes. going to um, achieve the world of 2050 that we hope to and, and that the rest of our brothers and sisters deserve. Um, what would you recommend for undergraduates if you had any thoughts on what to study and maybe what to do to enrich their experience as they go through, well, hopefully we go back to in-person lectures at some point. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I often give a lecture in uh, uh, careers in, the, in livestock production, and um, I tell the students that it's a great time to enter the livestock industry for several reasons. I, I, and that's the forage and livestock industry. Um, you know, a lot of our farmers in the West, in the U.S. here are aging, uh, so I think there's a lot of need uh, for younger folk to enter and to come in. But um, the need to find sustainable, efficient ways that are a win-win for all concerned is, I don't think, has ever been greater. So we need strategies to produce livestock that will, I have been proposing or strongly advocating that by 2050, livestock production should be carbon neutral and can be. You know, we already have technologies in place now that are drastically reducing greenhouse gases. 
whether it's um, uh, the NOP or whether it's the seaweed and, you know, a number of them, I won't go into them. I think one of your previous speakers asked. Um, and then there for some other systems, um, agroforestry, silvopastoral systems, those are some of those when well managed actually sequester carbon from the environment. Same thing with pastures, if it's well managed. So people often have this negative perception of livestock as being the bad boys or bad girls and always pushing out um, emissions, which doesn't have to be. And I think we have tools in our, uh, in, in our toolbox now that are helping us to figure out ways in which we can more sustainably raise our animals. And the good thing is that the, the strategies that we can deploy or employ to reduce emissions by livestock will also increase efficiency of nutrient utilization by the same animals. Because when we, methane is a waste product and it contains energy. Um, nitrous oxide is a waste product and it contains nitrogen. If we can retain some of that in the animal, then the performance of the animal will increase. So it's a win-win. And so I think for our young people, there's a tremendous opportunity to come into this area and to make a difference uh, and to show that the livestock industry can and is an important partner that can help with um, the sustainability of ecosystems, um, with improving nutrition um, and health outcomes for people in the West or in the global South, uh, so developing countries as well as developed countries. Um, so I think it's a tremendous opportunity time for our young people to think about a career in agronomy, animal sciences. And um, I would suggest that they open their minds uh, and, and be um, objective in what they, they listen to um, and think about how much science is, um, is, is, is involved in what I'm hearing, how much evidence because there's a lot of hearsay. You talked about some of the nutritional epidemiology studies. Now that's not so much hearsay, but it's the, the, some of those um, studies don't have the same kind of rigor that we have in our animal science agronomy studies. So for our young people, I think it's important for them to understand the scientific method, understand how to critically appraise information and know the difference between fact and fiction and something that is, is in between. But I think this is a tremendous time for young people to get into this industry. Excellent. Um, Bola, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's always good. We've spoken a few times on the phone and, and had the chance to run into each other on at least two occasions that I can recall. Um, before I let you go, um, I'm going to open myself up to questions that you might have for me. But again, um, thank you for this time and, and giving us an introduction to the Food Systems Institute and the Feed the Future Innovation for Livestock uh, Systems. Um, any questions you'd like to ask me? You know, um, Peter, thank you for 
giving me the opportunity to ask. I don't have a question for you, but I do have a lot of thanks for you and appreciation for this series, these podcasts. I consider it an honor to have been invited to to speak, and uh, I think you're doing a tremendous job to get the other side of the coin, the the, the, the to redress the balance and make sure that people here. Um, get things in perspective is because there's so much bad press about livestock. So thank you very much for what you're doing. Um, you're more than welcome and it's a pleasure and an honor. Um, in some sense, I think it's a duty, um, right. which, which right. I hear you and your collaborators expressing and in, in striving to eliminate um, stunting and, and other forms of malnutrition. So um if there's ever anything I can do to help you and your colleagues, I, I would hope that you wouldn't hesitate to ask. Thank you very much. That's very kind. Thank you.